And how is he doing it? Two things. He says both he's willing and working for his good pleasure. He's willing things to happen in you. That's how God works. He can will your growth. And then by the Spirit, He is molding you. So if you're trying to grow in your understanding of Scripture and you have a Bible reading plan and you're making progress, you're actually an active agent, but don't think you're the prime mover. God and His Spirit is actually working inside of you and willing you to actually read so that you'll get to the point where you'll be presentable as a holy child before Jesus Him. Sometimes I play with my children on the uh, trampoline at our house, and we have a game. You've probably played it if you've ever been on a trampoline. Uh, They play a game where um, one of them is is jumping here, and the other one tries to jump and time it. And if you time it just right, this other guy gets a special jump. And they they love for me to play it because when I come in, I bring the 200 pounds to the table, right? When Big Daddy gets on it, the trampoline sinks a little bit. But when I start to jump, if I time it just right, there'll be this catapult effect, and they'll go way up higher than they could ever do themselves. That's the idea. God is the one actually catapulting you forward. And the illusion of victory we could have is that we're all on our own in our spiritual growth project, right? Like a kid who sees his dad jumping, And they get propelled higher and they say, wow, I've improved my hang time. Look what I did. That's the illusion of victory that you could have in your own discipleship. As you see progress, remember you're an agent, active, responsible, but you are not the prime mover. And what this will do, it will push you towards thankfulness and gratitude and more joy in Jesus. You will actually delight in Him more. How do you avoid this? Well, you can ask yourself questions. There's a lot of things to do. One question you can ask, if you find yourself actually growing in an area, ask yourself, when you grow in your following of Jesus, are you more satisfied in yourself for the growth, or are you actually more satisfied in Jesus? Are you more satisfied that you've completed your memory verse for the day, or are you more satisfied in Jesus? Remember, God is the prime Mover. That brings us to our second point today on the outline. So we saw how in discipleship you're an active agent, but not the prime mover. Next, notice something else. Remember that in your discipleship, church relationships are the context. Okay, Church relationships are the context. Here's what I mean by that. God, who is a loving God, He has lovingly ordained that you would grow optimally towards Him through these relationships that you have in the local church. It is the optimum environment, the local church, for experiencing and delighting in God Himself. That's why we urge people to join the church. So glad to see young people wanting to join the church. That means they get it. Chiefly, we're going to grow best within discipleship relationships in the church. We're going to have a stay-and-play later where we all eat together here. I love it. I'm told we're not having barbecue ribs, and that is too bad. But it will be quality food, and you'll love it. But I was thinking about making ribs. How do you make, say, a dry rub of ribs? Maybe you've done this, right? You take a bag, and you put your salt in there, 
and your garlic salt, cayenne pepper, black pepper, whatever else you want in that bag, and then you take the hunk of meat, it's not going to be barbecue unless you do what? You put the barbecue in the bag, you seal it, and you shake it up, right? Because you want that meat to be stuck with all the spices. Pull it out, and then it's barbecue. You don't put it in the bag, it doesn't work. That's the way God wants discipleship to work. He knows that you need people in this church sticking all over you to grow you up into the best image of God. Without the spice of the gifts of other people in the church, it's just not going to work. It's not going to be barbecue. Speaking of not working, I heard a joke. I liked it. What do you call a deer with no eyes? No idea. <laughs> That's not bad. <laughs> yeah. uh, we can go forward. Maybe that didn't work. And discipleship often won't work as good as it can unless it's faced with other faces in the local church. Now, this, this idea is not coming from me. It's coming from the Bible. Think about Philippians that we just read. You might not know this, because as you're reading your Bible, we really want you to personalize it and let God talk to you. But there's also a sense that it was originally written to people in clumps, people in groups. Look at the first verse of chapter 1 in Philippians. Paul is writing to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. A lot of these letters aren't just written to individuals, though he's talking about discipleship. Romans is the same way. 1 Corinthians is the same way. 2 Corinthians is the same way. Colossians, Ephesians, and other books are all writing to a club, a group, a group of community, a glob of people who are expected to do discipleship, follow Jesus, live in Jesus, live to see Jesus together. That's the biblical expectation. We want to pursue this. Look in Titus 2, if you want to turn with me really quickly, to the book of Titus, chapter 2. If you don't know what Paul's job was, he was a church starter, a church planter. He would go from town to town, rustle up a bunch of people in the name of Jesus, and they would have a church. And so here in Titus, we get a view of him riding back to a church that he already founded on the little island of Crete. And he's talking to Titus about discipleship. And he said, here's a plan for discipleship. Look what he says. I want the older men to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, and love. This is Titus 2, verse 2 and in steadfastness. Older women likewise to be reverent in their behavior, not slander or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And verse 4, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, worked in the home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. And likewise, older guys urge the younger men to be self-controlled. What do we see here? What a beautiful picture of what discipleship is supposed to be according to Paul. You've got the more dignified, seasoned ladies in the church pouring into the younger girls. You've got the older guys offering guidance to the young fellows. That's discipleship. It's made within this group of real people that you see and you grind with day to day. And you might ask, well, why is this so? Why can't I just find discipleship in my own lane? 
Maybe there's somebody I, I work with. Isn't that just enough? I want, I want to kind of pour into them. Or somebody at my hobby. I'm in a running club. And wouldn't it be better just for me to hang out with people with my own interest? That's a good question. I found a, a video online of a pastor named Dottie Lewis. He's in Atlanta. And he addresses this question of making disciples, why we want to do it in the church. Do we have that video? I define disciple making by it is our, and I, and I use the word our literally, our capacity to lovingly embody the person and work of Jesus Christ and to transmit him into the life of others, right? And I believe that um, disciple making is, one, it should live primarily in the local church. I believe that it is, you know, the old African proverb that says, if it takes a village to raise a child, I believe that it takes a church to raise a Christian, right? And so I really think that, you know, it's, it's our capacity that, you know, there's no one person that has all the gifts of the spirit. And since there's no one person that has all the gifts of the spirit, then it is... Um, we find the manifold wisdom of God in the local church. So if I don't have the church or if I'm discipling someone outside of the context of the church, what I end up doing is making lopsided mini-me's, you know, that look like me, talk like me, and act like me. All right, you know? good. Great word. A couple things I want to emphasize that he said. The first was his idea of it taking a church to make a disciple, just like it takes a village to raise a child. It takes a church to make a disciple. Why is that? Because the Bible says that the manifold wisdom of God, all the greatness and gloriousness of God is actually revealed specifically, uniquely among your church relationships in the church. As he said, one brother might have the gift of love, one sister might be faithful, another sister is good and kind, someone is compassionate, someone is all about justice, and one is all about mercy. And when you're in the church and discipling in that context, whoever you're discipling gets to see all of that. And it's not just you and them. Likewise, if you're being discipled, you get all of the manifold wisdom of God. Author and pastor Russell Moore said it like this. Here's a good quote. Russell Moore said, In the Bible, a local church with all of its ridiculous flaws. Now get that. We're not saying that the church is perfect. Right? Not what we're saying. We just say it's optimum. Uh, it is an unveiling of the mystery of the universe. She is a one flesh union with Jesus, such that as in a marriage, everything that belongs to Jesus belongs to the church. A congregation in covenant with one another is an assembly of Christ's people, a colony of the coming global reign of Christ, a preview of what his kingdom will look like in the end where there's a covenant among believers, a disciplined community of faith, the Spirit of Jesus is present among them, just as God was present among the people of Israel in the temple of old. So God has given a context for your discipleship. Context matters. And everything in life, context matters. The context for your discipleship should be your relationship in the local church. Another thing Pastor Lewis brought up at the very end, if you heard him, he said, doing discipleship in community with relationship in your church is going to prevent you from making a bunch of mini-me disciples, right? People who look like you, talk like you, think like you, but not necessarily like Jesus, right? That's the danger that we want to avoid. That's a victory, uh, an illusion of victory. What we want 
There's someone made and crafted by all of us within this context to look more and more like Jesus. Now think about how the gospel itself works. The gospel is the story of God creating everything good, but people mess it up through our own rebellion. But then God sent His Son, Jesus, to make things right. Jesus was perfectly worshiping God in His life, perfectly obedient in His death, and by offering a sacrifice, He actually paid the penalty for us rebelling against God. And then what happens in your conversion? The Spirit of God opens your eyes to the beauty of Jesus and how great a Savior He is and all the delight that you can find in Him. But at that moment, when the Spirit opens your eyes, He doesn't just hog you to Himself. Instead, He brings you into the Godhead. The Son is there. The Father is there. The Spirit is there. Your redemption is a community project from within the Godhead. And similarly, when we're thinking about how am I going to make disciples, we need the community. We want to bring people as we help them walk beside them. We want it to flow from relationship within the local church. Something new here at TCC that we're facilitating, if you're interested in walking beside somebody, either as a leader or as a follower, as a seasoned woman or a younger woman, as an older guy or a younger dude, we can make this happen. We're starting to match people up in the church that desire relationship. Maybe you've seen someone, you thought, man, I've always admired that person, but there's no way I would ever ask them. I'm a little scared to say, hey, can you spend time with me? Might be awkward. You're an introvert. I get it. But we have deacon ministry here at TCC that enables a matching of sorts. If you desire it, we can give you a plan of discipleship. Um, Robin Muse is one of our deacons. You can actually call her, sign up, text her. We have her number here, I think. You can text right now during my sermon. Usually don't text during the sermon, but now you have permission. Text her and she'll try to match you up with someone for you to disciple in the church or for someone to disciple you in the church. We're trying our hardest here to make sure you find relationship here within the church. And that brings us to our third point. We've talked about how in discipleship we can create an illusion of victory if we forget that, though we are active agents, we're not the prime mover. Also, we want to remember that relationships in the church are the context for our discipleship. And finally, in your discipleship, you should be more than do. We want you to be more than do. What do we mean by that? We'll turn back to Galatians 5. This is the passage that Joanna read the very start of the sermon, Galatians 5. Here in Galatians 5, we find Paul's famous writing about the, the, the spirit and the flesh and how they're against each other in Galatians 5. And what Paul's talking about there is discipleship. He wants his people to follow Jesus, living in Jesus, or as he might call, in the spirit, and then living to one day meet Jesus. And the context here for Paul is he's talking to a church where some false teachers have come in and they have introduced a works-based salvation. They have said, Gentiles in this church, in order to be truly loved by God, you need to be circumcised. Paul identifies this and he says, that is apart from Christ. We don't want that. 
And he begins to counter by saying, you have freedom in the Spirit because faith triumphs works. And you can see it in verse 3. It says, you were called to freedom, brothers. You don't have to be enslaved to a works-based gospel or a works-based discipleship. You're saved by grace, not by works. Then he begins to say, that doesn't mean you have the liberty to sin. He says here in verse 13, only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you should love your neighbor as yourself, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Verse 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to one another to keep you from doing the things you want to do. You're led by the Spirit. You're not under the law. Now he's going to list off the works of the flesh. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, things like these. But I want you, as warned before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now here he goes with his discipleship talk, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, Self-control. Against such things there's no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. A couple reasons I wanted you to look at this text. First, and again, Jared Wilson points this out in his book, what are the evil things called in this list? Did you catch that? Verse 19, look again. He lists off all the bad stuff. What's he call them? calls them works, right? There's a sense of working, of doing in his evil list. I can do anger. I know what that means. I've done it before. But what does he call the godly things, the spiritual things? He doesn't call them works. Verse 22, what's he call them? Fruit, right? Fruit's a lot different than work. What is a fruit? Well, a fruit is something you plant as a seed. You nourish it. You water it. It grows up as a tree. Then it blossoms. And then it becomes. Right? A fruit is. There's a sense of being. Becoming. When you have the image of fruit, you have a sense, not of work, but it's a sense of being something. That's what he's getting at. True discipleship is becoming. It's the hallmark. We are to become people of love. We're to be love. We're to be joy. We're to be peace. As has been said, everything we do as followers of Jesus is based upon who we already are. If you love grammar, you're a grammar geek. The imperative is based on the indicative. All these commands are based on who you are. Theologian Michael Byrd says it like this. Michael Burr was writing about this. I thought this was a good quote. He says, I have found it common for preachers to say that Christians have two natures, spiritual and carnal, and then to liken these to two fighting dogs. You may have heard that before. You know, your bad side is fighting with your good side. 
So our duty is to feed the good dog and starve the other one. But it's not quite true like that, since Christians have really one true nature. That's the new creation. That's the nature that is given to us at salvation. The process of discipleship or sanctification is about becoming who and what we truly are. Cracked vessels that have been transformed into precious vases. So that when sin affects us as Christians, it's not simply a civil war that's going on inside of us and we have to somehow uh, temporarily yield to our carnal nature as opposed to the spiritual nature. There's some of that, but primarily, it's more like we fail to be and act as we truly are new creations. In other words, if you're having trouble fighting your sin in your life, it's more like trying to play a CD on an iPhone, right? You don't play CDs on your iPhone. You play Spotify or some other app. That's what your iPhone's for. We are to be who we already are in our discipleship. We are to be what we're already becoming, and we are to be who we are going to be on the final day before Jesus. That's the hallmark of true Discipleship and this be instead of do perspective is going to keep us from making the mistake of the Galatians. Because let's face it, when some of us think about disciple making, we think about uh, maybe the model you see in uh, Crew University Ministries. I was in Campus Crusade when I was a kid. It used to be called Campus Crusade. And I love it, and they're still awesome. Their discipleship model, when you go in as a freshman, you read certain books and you meet certain people. The next year, you go to certain retreats, go on a beach trip, and you meet certain people and you start to mentor someone. The next year, you read these three books, you become a leader of this, and then you go to this event. Uh, it's very much a check the box. And of course, in any discipleship, there are going to be accomplishments. But if you think that that's all discipleship is, or primarily what discipleship is, you can miss the boat because discipleship Paul is more like becoming the new creation that you already are. Becoming speaks more to character change, not external accomplishment. Internal development rather than external achievement. So when we think about our relationships, how are we to think about them? Well, if you're walking with a young mother who's drowning in the persistent whining of her three-year-old day after day after day. She's in the grind, man. Be patient. Be patient to her. Show up and just embody patience. What about a husband who's feuding with his in-laws and you know this guy? Show up there. and Become peace to him, right? Just be peace. That's what discipleship looks like. Or the empty nester struggling with depression because the kids aren't around anymore and they like a full house and now it's empty. And show up and just be joy. Right? You don't have to concentrate on what you have to do. You have a lot of freedom there. But become joy to that person. Sean mentioned last week that in the New Testament we have 40-something one-another commands where a Bible author is saying, you should do this to one another. Be this to one another. And I really think this be perspective is at the heart 
of all of these commands. If you look at all these commands in the New Testament, you can kind of group them. The first grouping, grouping would be dealing with love, passages dealing with love, like John 15, 12, where John said, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. That's Jesus talking. That gets at the heart of discipleship. Be loved, because I have been loved to you. Romans 13, 8, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another fulfills the law. Be loved to one another. The second group of passages deal with uh, the topic of unity. Like in Ephesians 4.2, we're told to bear with one another. Stick with each other. That's what unity is. Be unity. Times are tough in your relationship. Maybe you've gotten an argument. Someone in this church hurt you. Bear. Bear with them. Be. Be unified. Or James 5.16. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. That's intimacy. That's union. If I confess what I did wrong to you, there's a unity there. If I'm coming before God in prayer with you, that's being unified. A third set of passages deal with humility. One another passages in the New Testament, like Romans 12.10. Outdo one another in showing honor. When you come in contact with another person, you should be racing to see who honors the other the more based upon your humility. That's being humble. Again, it's not necessarily a to-do list in your relationship. It's who you be. Be humble. 1 Peter 5.5 5. Clove yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. That's a good picture. Maybe think of a superhero. Clark Kent, kind of a humble guy who works a newspaper. Doesn't do a lot of heroic stuff. But when he puts on a Superman costume, he is super. He, he becomes what he wants to be. Be humble. Clove yourselves, 1 Peter 5.5. 5. Over yourself. There's a fourth set of passages that deal with all kinds of other things, maybe like hospitality. 1 Peter 4 9. Peter says, Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Be hospitable. You're talking with someone you just met at church. We have a fellowship after church. That's your chance. Paul doesn't say, uh, sit down for five minutes, talk about their family, and they give you a list. Just be hospitable. Speak truth. Colossians 3.9. Paul says, don't lie to one another. Be honest. Be an honest person. You know what an honest person would do. Be honest. Give comfort. 1 Thessalonians 4.18. Therefore, encourage one another. I don't have to be a Bible expert to encourage someone. Tell them how you see God working in their life. I want to encourage you. Be comfort. On and on and on the Bible goes. And there's a trick to this that you might have noticed. At the very core of discipleship, being rather than doing, is your chance, wonderful chance, to be the gospel to someone. To actually be redemptive. Be Jesus, in a sense, to someone. Now, I'm not talking about you never speak the gospel. I'm not 
One of those guys that says, don't speak the gospel, just act it out. That's not what I'm talking about. But in your discipleship, you have a chance to role-play Christ to someone. Take love, for instance. You know someone needs the love. Think about the love of God towards you in Jesus Christ. He sent Jesus for you, and Jesus willingly was tortured and hung and lovingly took all of your sin for your good and for God's glory. That's love. Jesus said there's no better love than that, someone who will die for you. When you interact with someone in a discipleship relationship, you're given the opportunity to love them as Christ. Be Christ. What about unity? Again, think of the gospel. In the gospel, the Father elects a certain people that he is going to save and he sets the plan of redemption in motion and then the Son comes and he accomplishes it with his death. And then when you're converted, the Spirit applies all that Jesus did for you. What a unity of cooperation there. When you're walking beside somebody in a relationship, you get to be that union to people. Hospitality. Jesus welcomes you into the family of God. God adopted you as his child and said, here's your inheritance. All of the new heavens, all of the new earth. That's hospitality of a divine scale. You have a chance to be hospitality to others. Here's a story that illustrates that. This past week, a lot of my uh, kids were on spring break. And so we were at the park. And on this particular day, it was one versus six. Me and six kids. So I was outnumbered, so I got to divide in order to conquer. So four of the kids, the older ones, are playing Ultimate Frisbee on the field. Two of the younger kids are over on the jungle gym at the playground. And I've got them in my peripheral, but I'm also playing this ultimate game. We're the only ones there at the park, so uh, I'm cool. It makes it a lot easier. And so we were in the middle of the uh, bigger kids' rough-and-tumble game of ultimate frisbee with I am too old to play, I found out. And we're playing this, and all of a sudden, my youngest, four years old, uh, out of nowhere, begins to jog onto the big kid field all alone, no longer with his sister that he was previously playing with. And right away, my daddy's spider sense starts to buzz a little bit, right? Why is he coming out here alone? And so my youngest, Asa, he, he jogs up to me, and he's at the age at four where everything he says, he yells. He just says a little louder. And so I walk up, and I'm like, Asa, what's wrong? And he's like, Papa, we got big problems. <laughs> I'm like, at that point, I get a little anxious because I don't see his sister, who is supposed to be watching him, anywhere inside, and I'm like, where's Shiloh? Seven-year-old sister. Is she okay? Is she hurt? She fall off a slide? Where's she at? Is she hurt? And he's like, no, but she pooped it all over herself. Now, my blessed seven-year-old adopted daughter from China, I got her when she was two. She had all kinds of developmental problems, and she has progressed so wonderfully in her English. She couldn't walk when we got her. Now she's walking. She's doing well in school, but sometimes because of her situation, she'll have some developmental setbacks. So at seven years old, sometimes she has accidents. And in that moment, 
I'm not the hero of the story because I got annoyed. Everything has to shut down. I got a little frustrated. I didn't see her. Why didn't she come to me? If she had to go to the bathroom, why didn't she come to me? That's not the point. My attitude is not the point of the story. But I begin to look for her, and then I see her. She's really only 25 feet away from me, but I didn't see her previous because she's managed to shrink into a park bench and make herself really small. And as I start to approach, I notice she's not looking me in the eye. She's looking down at the ground. She was so ashamed of herself that she couldn't even come tell me. She sent her little four-year-old brother. And as I get closer, it becomes obvious she has a head-to-toe mess that she cannot rescue herself from. She's tried because she's got a little poo on her arm and some in her head, and it's not pretty. And as I walk up to her, I look around, and she's not talking. She's about to cry, but she's trying to be brave. She wants to rescue herself. She knows she should have, but then she didn't. And I look around, and we're the only ones there. I send the other kids off. And I realize I don't have any spare clothes. I didn't bring diapers. I didn't bring wipes. No tissues. Just us on this empty playground. Nothing. Then I did what any of you fathers would have done. There's nobody there, so I took her shirt off, and it's ruined. It's going in the trash there. Take her pants off, put them in the trash. So she's standing there naked, but her sock and shoes. And then I just took my shirt off, put this big XL shirt over her, and it covers her completely. And I grabbed her hand, and we walked 100 yards or so back to the car. And it was only about an hour later that my dense head saw what a picture of the gospel. Right? We were all these people sitting in a mess that we could not deliver ourselves from. Mess of shame and sin and guilt. And then someone did not leave us alone. They didn't stay on the playground. Jesus came to us, exposed himself so that we might be covered with his righteousness. And now he's with you. He's holding your hand no matter what you come in contact with. What a gospel picture. And this is your chance. Discipleship is your chance to be that to someone else. You can picture Christ on a daily basis to those within the church that you have relationships with. It's my prayer that you'll spend even today and this whole week discipling others by being rather than doing. Let's pray together. God, we praise you for all the gifts of the Spirit that you have given this fine church. And Father, I am convinced you want to see wonderful outbreakings of victory with our people. And I pray that you do it through discipleship relationships. God, you have come to us and delivered us in Jesus, and yet... We still need you. Don't let go of our hand, oh God. Walk beside us and use people in this church to show us how great you are. God, I pray these blessings and many more in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. We'll go now from the cross to the table and take the Lord's Supper together. If you're a guest here and you're a follower of Jesus, this is how we do it. We have two tables up front. One in the back. 
We ask now that you just think about Jesus. Talk to your Father. And when you're ready, approach the table, take the elements back to your seats. And then when it's right, go ahead and take the supper. If you're here, the guest, and you're not a Christian, you just came with a friend, we ask that you watch the meal too. It's a family thing, so we ask that you don't eat it if you're not a believer. But there's still substance here for you. Watch God's people, how we depend on Jesus. With that in mind, let's take the gospel-oriented Lord's Supper together.